1: Love, talk Radio. Welcome to another edition of Theology Matters, folks. I'm your host, Devin Paloo, and really excited to uh, be back. Haven't done a radio show for a little little while, been out for a few months, but uh, glad to be back and have some really exciting shows uh, coming up here in the future. We'll talk about here in a bit. But uh, today we're going to be interviewing uh, Miss Nancy Piercy on her new book, uh, Love Thy Body. And been really excited to get her on to talk about this book. As, uh, I think it's really, really important and I think will definitely uh, be very beneficial and, and just another uh, great tool in many tools that uh, she has given us. And so we're going to dive a little bit into that. Uh, if you've not liked us on Facebook, you can go to uh, Theology Matters with the paloos and uh, on that uh, Facebook page, you'll see a lot of the shows that we've done. Uh, we've hosted a lot of um, discussions and dialogues, we've had uh, atheists and pro-choice uh, people on to, to debate some of these uh, important issues, as well as uh, several of the uh, folks from the Discovery Institute and, and uh, look at intelligent design. So uh, if you've not liked our show be sure, or our page, be sure to do that, and you'll get a list of uh, our podcasts and uh, older shows that we've done. So that being said, let me go ahead and introduce uh, kind of this, this episode of Theology Matters. We're going to be talking to the best-selling author and professor Nancy Piercy. We're going to be discussing again her, body, love thy, uh, her book, Love Thy Body Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality. Uh, in this book, uh, Ms. Piercy fearlessly and with compassion makes the case that secularism denigrates the body and destroys the basis for human rights. Throughout, Piercy sets forth a holistic and humane alternative available to all, one that offers authentic reality oriented solutions that embrace the dignity of the human body and provide a sustainable basis for unalienable human rights. Ms. Piercy has been a visiting scholar at Biola University's Tory Honors Institute, professor of worldview studies at Cairn University, and Francis A. Schaefer scholar at the World Journalism Institute. Currently, she's a professor of apologetics and scholar in residence at Houston Baptist University and a fellow at the Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture, and editor at large of the Piercy Report. Miss Piercy, are you there?
2: I sure am. Ready to go.
1: <laughs> well, I appreciate you uh, you coming on and joining us to talk about your new book. Uh, for those maybe who are not familiar with some of your your other works, probably one of the most popular works uh, you have done was Total Truth and uh, maybe you want to take a minute or so uh, just to talk about that and uh, what what exactly is in there.
2: Yeah, well, Love Thy Body builds on total truth, and so I'm glad you're starting there. Um, total truth deals with the the breakup in the concept of truth itself, and uh, Francis Schaeffer was the first person to sort of sound the alarm on this in uh, in evangelical circles, and he pointed out that uh, people used to have a comprehensive view of truth. They knew that there were natural truths and there were moral truths. And they thought that they were integrated into one, one total system. Uh, with the rise of modern science, many people began to think that the only reliable knowledge is empirical facts, what's what's scientifically knowable. Well, what happens then to things like moral truths, theological truths? Well, they decided those are not really truths at all because they can't be stuffed into a test tube or studied under a microscope. So they're not really truths after all. They're just private subjective values. Those are your, pro- your personal preferences. So he, uh, Schaefer, Schaefer used the image of two stories in a building where the lower story became um, empirically knowable truths, what's rational, what's objective. And the upper story became defined as the area of personal preference and personal values. In, in the secular world, this was called the fact-value split. Uh, Schaefer didn't use that term, but um, when I discovered that the secular world understood the same thing, they just had a, they just had a name for it. They called it the fact-value split. Um, th- and then I wrote Total Truth to help Christians understand that th- this is the mindset. Uh, it's, it's the grid. My, st- my students say, this is the matrix. This is the way people, the framework in which people think, and they don't know they think this. So that if you try wow. to communicate a Christian view, they immediately, without even thinking about it, put it in the upper story where they, they hear it as you making a statement about your personal faith, your personal beliefs, what makes you feel better. And that's why they can say, well, that may be true for you, but not true for me. Because they have the split view of truth. But well, they've decided
1: right. that
2: theological truths are not really truths, and they don't even hear you making an objective truth claim.
1: Yeah, I, I love that. You know, I, I do work on the college campus and um, kind of give that the, the, some kind of analogy. And I would ask, um, you know, how how far is the sun from the earth? You know, is it uh, just can we know for certain, you know, is it 93 million miles away? Is that true for me? And somebody else says, well, it's only, only 6 million miles away. Uh, we we just wouldn't think like that, right? We would say, no, there's an objective way to test that. But, you know, you're so right. When it comes to the religious truths, it just seems like those are kind of personal preference or, or up for grab.
2: Exactly. And that's why you can hear people say, well, that could be true for you, but not true for me. They would never say that in terms of facts. Here's here's another way of uh, thinking about it. We often hear people say, um, don't impose your values on me. But we never hear people say, don't impose your facts on me. Values are considered (laughs) personal preference. Facts are considered objective and true. That's that split view of truth at work.
1: That's such a great analogy, and we really do see it. Uh, And then... The other book you did, uh, Finding, Finding Truth, I think I've, I've had you on the podcast before. We talked a little bit about that book, but maybe for those who didn't, who didn't hear the, the podcast, tell us a little bit about Finding Truth.
2: Yeah, I'm really excited about Finding Truth because it gives us a way to test any and all truth claims. I don't know about you, Devin, but you probably are, read a lot of books on apologetics and philosophy and worldview. And I sometimes find it overwhelming. I feel like, well, you know, there's this, this argument applies to that view, and this argument applies to that view, and this argument applies to another view. And I think, how am I going to remember all that? There is no way I can master and remember all of these arguments and have them at my fingertips when I'm talking to a real person. Well, finding truth gives one simple, systematic way, strategy of answering all the isms. And it's, what's really exciting is it's based on Romans 1. So we can, it's, not, it's not something any person invented. It's, it's from Scripture. It's from God's Word. And it's, in Romans 1, Paul says, if you don't acknowledge the transcendent creator, you will end up making a god, an idol, out of something in the created world. Right? They exchange the truth of God for something in the created world. And... We don't, you know, obviously idols are not just golden calves, statues. An idol can be an intellectual concept as well. So take, for example, um, materialism, modern materialism, which is, um, you know, rampant on the secular campus today. It says every, what is the ultimate, what is the ultimate reality? Where does everything come from? Matter. Well, so matter is, in a sense. Uh, functioning as its God, as the ultimate reality, as the uncaused cause of everything else. So matter is its idol. So it functions as an idol in the biblical sense because it takes the place of God. And you can do that with every religion and every philosophy. You can say, okay, if they don't acknowledge its transcendent creator, there will be something within the cosmos that it will have to choose as its ultimate and then i go on to show wow. why that that all you can always i go on to show how that will always be ineffective it will always be inadequate why because if you take part of creation it's always a part and a part cannot explain the whole and so once you get the the, the strategy down you can take any ism and show it doesn't it's not enough to explain well take materialism since we already mentioned that materialism will never be enough to explain the human person because it says it has to deny everything about you that's not material. It has to reduce people to bio- complex biochemical machines. And so it says free will, nah, it's, it's an illusion. You know, um, <laughs> love, meaning, and even consciousness, that's the issue today, uh, sort of on the front lines is what is consciousness? Well, there are right. lots of saying it's an illusion. So they have to deny everything about the human being that's not reducible to matter. And so, as a result, it will never be big enough, so to speak, to explain all of human reality. And you can do that with every is and out there. You can show why. If it, choose, it has to choose something in the created order as its God, and then it will never be big enough to explain all of human experience. And what philosophy is supposed to do, after all, is to explain <laughs> reality right. as we experience it. So that's what Finding Truth that's does. Right. It's, it's, it's a great equipper for anyone who's trying to make sense of secular and and religious worldviews,
1: yeah, it's a it's a phenomenal book. And uh, you guys can go back on our podcast and listen to that. I think we did almost a two hour episode uh, on that book. So be sure to uh, to Google Google theology matters. Uh, Nancy Piercy and that, that work should come up as well. So tell us a little bit about the the new book. I figured we could spend a little time and just delve into the chapters, but what would you say kind of as an overview of, uh, I guess, I would suppose this is your newest work, uh, love thy body.
2: Yeah, it takes, it takes that split view of truth that I analyze in finding in a, in total truth, in total truth. I show that there's a split view of truth. Well, If you have a split view of truth, it's going to affect everything, including a view of the human person. And so what I show is that in secular thought today, there is a split view of the human person. Um, It's often called uh, the body-person dualism. And if let me unpack it. Sometimes it's easier to show than to tell. I'll unpack it in terms of abortion because that's the easiest place to see it. Today, there are no bioethicists who deny that life begins at conception ordinary people might sometimes quibble about this but professional bioethicists because of the advances in, in genetics and dna none of them deny that the human life begins at conception but what they all argue then is that the fetus is human from conception but it's not a person to become a person, you have to have a prescribed level of self-awareness, uh, self-determination, cognitive ability, and so on. So in essence, what, the, what are they saying? They're saying that being human gives you no moral standing, gives you no legal protection, that being human is not enough to have human rights until, until it becomes a person. It's really just a disposable piece of matter. It can be killed for any reason or no reason. It can be used for research. It can be tinkered with genetically, harvested for organs, and then disposed of with the other medical waste. And this is actually called personhood theory. And you can see how it's an outworking of that fact-value split. If you think of the two-story metaphor, to be biologically human is a scientific fact. That's in the lower story but to be a person is an ethical concept and that's defined by what we value so it's in the upper story and and it's completely relativistic every bioethicist draws the line at a different place because there's there's really no san- scientific definition of personhood I mean, think of it this way if you were to, if to change to change from a piece of matter to a person with inviolable rights to life is a momentous change. But there's no transformative point that science can detect objectively. So the definition of personhood is purely subjective, arbitrary, private, just like all the other personal values.
1: And it's amazing uh, how many Christians tend to think like this as well. I, I, talk to them all the time where they almost have the same, uh, I think you give the, um, what what Francis Schaeffer with the two stories um, and you know, I thought like that <laughs> for a long time before uh, before I was a Christian, it's almost like you're trained to think like that, uh, there's these uh, you know, difference between religious truths and uh, ethical truths, or these these other type of truths that you're talking about so I guess, uh, I mean, you seem to to tackle it in Chapter 1. Uh, it's titled, I Hate Me, The Rise and Decline of the Human Body. So maybe we can start there, and I'll just kind of let you un- unpack a little bit in the chapter.
2: Right. Well, that chapter goes, um, it's kind of a survey chapter, um, because I found that the best way to explain the body-person dualism is through examples. And so that first chapter goes through virtually all the major issues. Um, so after, and after uh, abortion, for example, I go on to euthanasia and, and assisted suicide. And like you, I have run into a lot of Christians who have questions about this. And I say, well, think of, think of it as the abortion argument in reverse. If bioethicists are defending abortion by saying anyone who has not achieved a certain level of cognitive awareness is not really a person then they defend euthanasia by saying if you lose certain cognitive abilities you're no longer a person even though you're obviously still human and at that point you can be you can be unplugged your treatment can be withheld your food and water can be discontinued your organs can be harvested so once again you see being biologically human is not enough to qualify for human rights. You have to earn the right to legal protection by exercising an arbitrary level of cortical functioning. And people try to sell this to the public as compassionate. Well, that's not compassionate. It's exclusive. It's saying some people don't measure up. They don't make the cut. They don't qualify for personhood. And interestingly enough, it's really the pro-life position that's inclusive. It says, if you're a member of the human race, you're in. You have the dignity and status of personhood. You are a full member of the moral community. So uh, I, I was once invited to be on an NPR program in San Francisco, and they they quizzed me ahead of time, the producer, quizzed me on my... And when I told him that, he uh, he called back later and said, I had been disinvited from the show. So I think what what's happening is um, I, I use the liberal buzzwords, uh, in exclusive and inclusive, and they were they didn't really know how to handle the fact that it's their view, really, that's exclusive.
1: Right. Yeah, and I, you know I think just the general public when they when they hear these arguments, like, well, it's a bio, it's it's biologically a uh, a human, but it's not a person. I think the general public just uh they don't know i think it you know a lot of Christians don't know what to do with that how to respond uh to that. How do you engage with that when you hear those those kind of arguments are made? How does the Christian respond to that?
2: Well, it gives us a chance to um craft our arguments in a very positive way. in other words, um we come across sometimes as negative or judgmental. Uh, angry, or don't do it, it's a sin, it's wrong, thou shalt not. But recognizing this body-person dichotomy helps us to be able to craft an argument that actually we're trying to help people have a higher view of human life. We're the ones who are saying uh, there is value in dignity, in just being human, quote-unquote just, that uh, it really goes back, ultimately, to your view of, of the cosmos itself. What is your view of the cosmos? Do you say that life is a product of blind material forces, um, and that human life, therefore, has no intrinsic meaning or purpose? Uh, in which case we, you know it's up to us. It's up to us then to decide what value and meaning life has. And on the one hand, that can sound very liberating, because it means we make up our own rules. On the other hand, what it means is that, objectively speaking, life has no meaning. It is insignificant in the literal sense of signifying nothing. And it's the Christian view that says, no, we see the cosmos as teleological, to use a technical term. Teleological just means purpose-driven. Uh, It has a purpose. It was created, you know, by a loving creator and it has meaning and purpose. And being human does not just mean you're a piece of matter. Being human means you're made in the image of God and have great dignity, value and significance. And so we are coming to people with a positive message that life has a higher meaning and dignity than they realize. And that. Uh, you know, we're we're not trying we're not coming at them to condemn them, but we're coming at them to encourage them to adopt this much higher, more more beautiful, more appealing, more attractive worldview. Yeah,
1: page twenty page twenty one of your book, you you kind of flesh that out as you're saying you have a quote that says um, Christianity holds that. Uh, body and soul together from an integrated unity that the human being is an embodied soul uh, by contrast, personhood theory entails a two level dualism that sets body against the person as though there were two separate things really stuck together as a result it demeans the body as extrinsic to the person, something inferior that can be used for purely pragmatic purposes and that's i love love how you're able to contrast that um I guess it kind of it, it a lot of it does get back to the world the world view issues um you know the the march for life I believe that starts started today is that correct
2: Yeah I think it did mm-hmm.
1: Yeah So it's it seems like um maybe more more Christians or or are starting to realize maybe non-Christians too starting maybe to realize um, that there is more you know intrinsic value to uh Life. I've heard. I've heard that uh, like the popular, some of the popular percentages, um, has kind of started to swing in favor of the of the pro-life position. Um, would you have you heard that, or would you know about that?
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's in love thy body. It's. Um, I give the statistics there, um, but the millennials are far more pro-life than their baby boomer parents and it's fascinating it's partly because of course of uh, ultrasound they've been able to see the baby in the womb the baby is no longer oh. um, you know no, no longer just invisible and right. they've come to see it more as a uh, a human rights issue the, and, and and of course they've seen the products of neonatal medicine where we can keep babies alive at small you know smaller and earlier and earlier ages so that um uh, I just saw a news article by a woman whose child was born at less than less than two pounds. You know these babies they're smaller than babies that are being aborted down the street at the abortion center and and wow. young people are aware of that they're scientifically educated enough to know that the babies being aborted are babies that that are viable that could survive, and that they've seen you know they've seen them seen them born, they've seen them thrive they've They no longer have the um, can kind of shut their eyes to the reality of the the humanity of the fetus, and again, you know, they've it's back to that humanity versus personhood. They realize that we know historically what happens when certain groups are denied personhood. We've seen it well most dramatically in the 20th century with the Holocaust and with and with communism. The Holocaust decided that certain groups were not fully human. You know, Jews, Jews, Slavs, Gypsies, and others were not fully human. Uh, excuse me. They knew they were human, but they denied them personhood. That's the distinction. Right. They right. denied them legal personhood, and the same with the Soviet Union. We've seen what happens when groups are, are denied as are labeled as sub persons or non persons. That's that's the terminology used even today by bioethicists. They will say the fetus is a human but is a non-person. So now we have this strange creature that's human but non-person, which is, which, which sounds counterintuitive because in the past we've always thought human a human is a person. And the Christian yeah. still thinks so. that. But the non-Christian today right. says, no, you can be a human non-person. But we've seen the consequences of that. And we know that it always leads to some group being suppressed, exploited, and ultimately eliminated. We know that it leads to inhumanity and tyranny
1: yeah I love that you know to your point with the with the younger generation um, seeming to be more pro life um, you know the reasons you outline it's it's like really because our science has gotten better and kind of uh, shown. Uh, life does begin at conception, and uh kind of really the it's the science that leads us to uh to that conclusion about uh protecting life and life beginning at conception. It just seems uh with the whole personhood thing it just seems almost like uh an escape hatch uh to try and to to still have the abortion, but you're not able to uh have that grounding in biology anymore how how would you how would you answer that objection when they're saying it's a human but not a person
2: well i like what you the direction you were taking that and that is that uh, today as christians who are this christians who are holding up uh the value of science and biology that if you're biologically human that counts we have a higher view of 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 biology. Essentially, what they're saying is, as long as the fetus is just a body and not a person, it can be killed for any reason. Well, we're saying no. If you're a body, if you're biologically human, that should be enough to count. It's Christians who are saying, uh, it's the scientific facts are what count, and not just with with this subject. Um, Obviously, with questions of of uh, homosexuality, transgenderism, and so on, all across the board, which is why I cover all of these. Um, these topics in love thy body is because they are all okay. dealing with a fragmented view of the person that says your body doesn't matter or your biology is not part of your true identity. The authentic self has nothing to do with who you are biologically. All of them denigrate the body and biology, and so this this is a. It's uh, surprising, I think, for many people because they think of Christianity as something that denigrates the body. Uh, what, what was, I read an article not too long ago that said pro-lifers are just against women, ha- women having a healthy, happy sex life. Well, no, it turns out it's Christians now who are saying we, we are the ones with a high view of the body and a high view of biology wow. and a high view of science, and we really need to yeah. turn the tables. When when we have discussions with people on this, the the the, the shoe is on the other foot now, and we need to take advantage of that when we have discussions with our friends and our uh, our family members who um, who are still a- asking questions about these things.
1: Uh, yeah, I love that because it's kind of touted in in this kind of the media that it's the the Christians that are anti-science and uh, you know anti-thinking, but. More and more, especially with the with Christian academics, you're seeing they're the ones that are that are going to biology and trying to chain their argument to biology, and it's it's the other side that uh, is is not wanting to do that. They, they're it's almost like they're trying to get away from uh, from the hard sciences. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah.
2: They're be- uh, well, they're becoming two. postmodern. Oh, go ahead. Yep. No, I just they they're, they're no. becoming postmodern. And, and that's why we need to understand postmodernism. There was a little um, anecdote that I tell in Lovely Body um, that um, it started when, when a deconstructionist, postmodern um, professor named Stanley Fish wrote an article. And uh, he said pro lifers have no right to bring their views in, into the public arena because their views are not based on science but on faith. And Robert George of Princeton challenged Fish to debate at a meeting of the American Political Science Association, and and, and in his paper he argued that in reality it's the pro-life position that's based on science. After all, um, nobody asks about the moral worth of human life until we first establish that human life exists. And so the pro-life argument starts with the scientific data. And there's uh, as, as a customary... Um, it's customary for the two scholars to exchange their papers ahead of time. So when the meeting opened, Stanley Fish threw Robert George's paper on the table and announced, Professor George is right, and he is right to correct me, which was uh, – the admission was met by a stunned silence. And and Stanley (laughs) Fish did have the – to his credit – he explained, He wrote an article later explaining, and what he meant was, you know, up until now, the supporters of abortion have cast themselves as the defenders of science and rationality uh, against the forces of ignorance and superstition, and which, which means religion, of course. But science is actually on, on the pro-life side now because it keeps pushing back the moment when life begins. And he says, as a result abortion supporters have shifted tactics. They now are the ones who are rejecting science and have shifted to this concept of personhood which is non scientific, non empirical, cannot be detected objectively. You know, it's defined differently by every bioethicist out there and <laughs> and is essentially a postmodern concept. And so I, I don't know that Christians have quite picked up on this and are really using it, but it's really in our favor to show that uh, that the other side has shifted tactics, like you said. The shifted tactics need no longer appeal to science. And, in fact, you, in, in Love Thy Body, I give some examples of, of abortion supporters saying, oh, well, who cares about the science? Who cares about the science? Uh, we need to move beyond science. Uh, we need to start just arguing for uh, women's rights or... Uh, you know, we need to start arguing that the Declaration of Independence is wrong. Not all life is equal. The mother's life, you know, takes precedence over the baby's life. And so, in other words, they're, they are consciously starting to say we need to move beyond the scientific facts.
1: Oh, that's that's good. Uh, good, good stuff. Folks, we're going to take a quick minute uh, break or so. Uh, if you would like to, uh, are you okay to uh, answer a few questions if people wanted to call Miss Piercy or Sure, that would be great Yeah, uh, the number is 760-542-3907 That's 760-542-3907 If you have a question Uh, It's not every day you get to talk to uh, Miss Piercy So it would be good to have you call in If you have questions and we come back We will look at uh, chapter 2 of her book Love Thy Body so stay with us.
2: You're listening to the Ankerberg Minute with apologist and best-selling author Dr. John Ankerberg.
0: How can we know that God exists? Well, there are many arguments for the existence of God, but one of the most popular is known as the moral argument. The moral argument shares that every law needs a lawgiver,
1: a personal being who's the source of our innate sense of right and wrong.
0: Since moral laws do exist, such as not lying, stealing, or not to murder, There must be an original source for these morals. The Bible explains that God alone is holy, righteous, and morally perfect and exactly fits the
1: description of this moral lawgiver. As Paul said, God's righteousness
0: endures forever. God alone is holy and serves as our source of perfection and standard of guidance for life. For additional resources
2: on this topic, log on to johnankerberg.org.
0: My name is Scott Klusendorf, I'm the president of Life Training Institute and I'm a guest lecturer in bioethics at Biola University. The case for life was written to express to the believer in Jesus Christ that he or she can make a defense for what they believe on the pro-life issue without offending people, by being gracious and yet at the same time bringing solid logic and argumentation to the debate so that unbelievers look at the Christian at that point and go, wow! Christianity has something relevant to say on a crucial moral issue of our day. Maybe, just maybe, it has something relevant to say on other big issues as well. Because once you start talking about the ultimate questions, like do humans have value for what they are or what they can do? Is truth real and knowable or is it just a preference like choosing ice cream? Once you bring those questions to the table, it's a real short journey over to the other questions over here which have to do with how do we get right with our maker? How do I as an individual get my my life in line with the creator of the universe? It's a nice bridge right into talking to people on evangelistic
1: You're going through, it. I, uh, have, I thought a question that atheists might ask, and it's kind of similar to the very first question that was asked, just pushing it a bit further. If a materialist asked you, why should I believe what you were calling general revelation is true rather than, than my materialism based on science? How would you respond to that?
2: Yeah, it's all, it's all about what is the purpose of a worldview or a philosophy. Is the purpose of a philosophy to create castles in the air, nice little systems, and hang up in the abstract realm? Or is it to explain the real world? If it's to explain the real world, then it has to fit the real world. You know, that's why we go to general revelation, which is you know, their, their own, and notice I kept stressing, their own experience doesn't fit their worldview. It's not like I'm telling them, I disagree with you. <laughs> We're pointing out that you yourself say that when you take your, like Steven Pinker, you take your lab coat off and you go home and you switch to a completely different paradigm. So it has to do with what is the purpose of a worldview. Most people want a worldview, not not for some abstract little logically coherent system. Yeah, like I kept sh- saying, uh, the uh, reductionist view is very logically consistent. If you start with natural causes alone, we will end up as being complex machines. That's logically consistent, but it's hanging up here in the abstract realm, doesn't fit the real world of even those who profess it. So I would press them to to the question of why are you even, why are we discussing philosophy? We want a philosophy that explains how you and I actually have to live in this world.
1: All right, folks, and we are back with Ms. Nancy Piercy, and you got to hear her in action a little bit there. And uh, just so so happy to have her join us. We're talking about her new book, Love Thy Body, and uh, just a, a fascinating work, just full of uh, great research and uh, very thought-provoking, very thought-provoking uh, work for sure. Uh, in chapter two, you uh, it's called the the joy. See, get the full full thing here. The joy of death. Uh, you Must Be Prepared to Kill. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, Chapter 2. And uh, when you get a minute, if you could talk a little bit about uh, Peter Singer, maybe for those who don't know uh, who he is and uh, just some of the stuff you have there.
2: Yeah, Well, you know, we have actually covered much of Chapter 2 because it then zeroes in on abortion. In other words, um, Chapter 1 is an overview and then Chapter Two starts with my first real issue, which is uh, uh, abortion. Um, but Peter Singer—it would be a good example of someone who adopts personhood theory. And what he says is the—you uh, know—from the, the, conception, you are a human organism, as he puts it. But you are not a person, and a person has to have some level of self-awareness. Um, he has a, a list of different qualities that you have to have if you're going to qualify as a person. But, of course, his list differs from every other bioethicist out there. Um, so, again, like, like we were saying before the break, it, personhood is a postmodern concept. It's very relativistic. And that right. implies, by the way, that's chapter three is euthanasia, which we've also touched on already as well. Um, as, as soon as you make a distinction between a person and uh, a, a a human and a person you you're making invidious distinctions that you know historically we know that various groups have once they've once they're considered subpersonal uh then they're considered ripe for exploitation and even you know putting them in concentration camps and killing them so i i think that people need to realize that this is not just an academic discussion of terms but that it has real world consequences
1: Wow, that's good. I think you're you're right. Real real world consequences uh, for real life people. That's good. Well, let's uh, maybe look at uh, number four: um, schizoid sex hijacked by the hookup culture. Talk a little bit about this this chapter for us, if you would.
2: Right. So here I am trying to show that this body-person division is. Is what is under, underlies all of the all of the issues, the secular ethic in every area. And so, think about the hookup culture um, and how it denigrates the body. The rules of the game of the hookup culture, as, uh, as every college student knows, the rules of the game are no love, no relationship, no commitment. Um, you're supposed to be able to walk away from it as if it never happened, or um, as uh, one one person was uh, quoted in uh, a young student named Naomi was quoted in Rolling Stone magazine saying. She said, "I think the mistake people make is they think that the you can divide a person in half. That you can say I have an emotional relationship on the one hand, and that the physical relationship is completely separate. And as she put it, and there are clean lines between them, so you can almost imagine." In Schaefer's upper and lower story here with clean lines between them, people think they can be purely physically involved and not involved as a whole person. Well, some people think, well, this kind of hedonism, doesn't that give sex too much importance? I would say, no, it gives sex too little importance. Another quote, yeah. this was in Rolling Stone as well. Uh, a young man told Rolling Stone magazine, sex is just... One piece of body touching another piece of body—it is existentially meaningless. So, what we're seeing here is that people are trying to live out that two-story dualism, dichotomy, the that two-story split in terms of their behavior. They're trying to say, "I think I can be physically involved and not and not emotionally involved." I, in, in Love, Like Body, I found several quotes from college students saying. To To be in the hookup culture, you have to respond just physically and turn yourself off emotionally. Or they'll say, "You know we get physically involved uh, without being emotionally involved. They, and yet at the same time, at the same time, they don't really <laughs> like this. There's a researcher named Donna Freitas who interviewed hundreds of college students, and on the one hand, they would say, oh, yes, the hookup culture is wonderful, it's liberating, it's fun, it's exciting. And then as she spent more time with them, they began to privately admit that they find their meaningless sexual encounters very disappointing, that they feel hurt and lonely, and that they wish they knew how to create a genuine relationship in which they're known and loved as whole persons. And so if you wanted, if to dig deeper, once again, what is this, where is this coming from? It's coming from a materialist view of the human being as a physical organism driven by sheer physical drives with no higher purpose. Wow. And no wonder it's leaving a trail of wounded people. They're trying to live out a worldview that does not fit who they really are.
1: Wow. That is, that is, uh, it's it just, because you see it all the time especially you know if, if you work with with college students and it really is kind of pointing them to that um that whole person really that Christian world view uh it's just such a such a dreary view just the naturalistic view it's just uh it just does not it just does not offer offer hope at all uh, you have a section on page 125, Porn vs. Intimacy. I uh, was wondering if you could maybe talk about that for a second as well, because I know that's, you had uh, some statistics that were pretty frightening as far as even Christians that, that are involved uh, with porn.
2: Yeah, that's right. Uh, at the beginning of the book, I have um, some statistics on the sheer number of people who are involved in pornography, including Christians. Um, and yes, I was surprised as well. I was surprised at how deeply the um, um, the, the problem has infiltrated the, the Christian church as well. Yeah, and and obviously pornography is perhaps the most obvious example of this body-person divide, because in pornography you're trying to respond to somebody's body without any connection to who they are as a person and if if you're totally depersonalizing the the person who's who's being um presented to you on the computer screen or the image whatever so um and then the, and you realize the next the next step is um sex robots. there are actually a couple of brothels now in Europe that are sex sex robot brothels and i've seen the i've seen the uh news items on them and uh, prepare yourself this is the worst there are sex robots now of children for pedophiles and there was an article not long ago I put it on my Facebook page if you want to look it up um, on sex robot child sex robots and fortunately some some countries are now passing laws outlawing them and, and not allowing them into their country and one of our uh, members of Congress is also introducing a bill so that uh, we we will have a law against it as well. But what we're seeing, of course, is people who are being programmed to treat women as just a body with no personal interaction at all. So if you want the extreme version of this body-person divide, that's what pornography is, and to train to train your brain to react to that kind of depersonalization it, you know it's it's not a harmless it's not a harmless recreation uh, Barna the researcher George Barna, found that even among christians uh millennials treat porn as no big deal; they don't realize how deeply it is training them to objectify women and is bleeding into their personal relationships. Um, they're not able, when they do get married or do have a serious relationship, they're finding that they're not able to respond to real women. They've, they've been so used to responding to this depersonalized image that they no longer can respond in a loving relationship to a real person. So it's destroying relationships.
1: Wow. Maybe for those listening who may have friends or Family members that are caught up uh, in that what how does the Christian respond to this? How do we help uh, our friends or family uh, work through this who who may be you know in this
2: well it's um it certainly there are um, good organizations out there that deal with it because it is a kind of of addiction when you see pornography your brain is flooded by dopamine and other chemicals. And that's where you get that sense of high, just like you do with alcohol and drugs and so on. It is very, very similar. And it actually begins to reprogram your brain, chemically speaking. And, And when your brain is flooded by a chemical like that, dopamine, um, it eventually starts shutting down the receptors because there's too much dopamine. That's why you're getting a high because there's actually too much, more than your body needs. And therefore, it begins shutting down those receptors, which means you don't get as much of a high next time. So eventually, you have to go to ever more hardcore porn in order to get the same high. And that's how it becomes an addiction. It is, it is literally like a drug addiction because your your body is responding to the dopamine in your brain. So that's why it's so dangerous. I mean, we now know that porn um, is not only addictive, but it it feeds into sexual violence against women. It destroys relationships. It feeds into sexual trafficking and prostitution. Uh, There's an organization uh, that is addressing specifically young people. It's called Fight the New Drug and their slogan is porn kills love, porn kills love. So they're helping, wow. they're trying to reach millennials with the message that porn is a lot more uh, devastating than than many people think. It it really is very wow. damaging to you as a person.
1: That's that's good. And, that, again, folks, that's Chapter 4 uh, in this book, so very, uh, very good stuff. Uh, chapter 5, you have uh, the body... Uh, in how the homosexual narrative demeans the body, and I know this—you know—would cause a lot of uh, anger in today's type of culture uh, to say this, but I'll let, or to say that, but I'll let you kind of flesh that out for us. Right?
2: Yes. Um, once again, if we get a better handle on it, um, you this is one of those issues where even in the church, young people um, are not sure why homosexuality is wrong Uh, I teach at a Christian college and my colleagues tell me that at least that more than half that more than half of the students do not have a biblical view of homosexuality so that's why this is so important to help them understand well what's behind the biblical view why you know not just is it wrong but why is it wrong and once again think of it this way it's the body person divide again no one really denies that biologically, physiologically, anatomically, males and females are counterparts to one another. That's how this human sexual and reproductive system is designed. So when you embrace a same-sex identity, implicitly you're contradicting that design. You are saying, why should the structure of my body inform my identity? Why should my biological sex, as a male or female, have any say in my moral choices, in, in where I direct right. my sexual desires. This is a profoundly disrespectful view of the body. The implication is that what counts is not whether I'm biologically male or female, but solely my mind, feelings, desires, and so on. It, you see, that's kind of the upper-lower story split we were talking about earlier. In the lower story, okay, fine, I'm biologically right. male or female. But in the upper story, I can decide what I want to be. I can decide to accept, you know, uh, I, I, I can deny the natural connection between, um, between biological sex and sexual desire. So it, it's a body-person split again, and so it has a fragmenting and self alienating effect on the human personality. So those who are defending a biblical view of sexuality are not relying on a few scattered Bible verses. Which are of interest, maybe only if you're a very literalist person. That's how many of my students think. Instead, if you have a biblical view of sexuality, what you are doing is you're accepting a teleological worldview. Teleological again means just means purpose-driven, where the structure of right. the universe, including our bodies, reflects a divine purpose, and as a result, the biblical ethic leads to, it heals that. Inner split. It heals the self alienation. It leads to a holistic integration of personality. It encourages people to live in harmony with their bodies. Uh, and even 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 postmodern gender theorists, um, Judith Butler is um, sort of the the guru of um, of queer theory. And even even she talks about a mismatch, a mismatch between our physical sex and our sexual desire. And she basically says, um, well, we just have to give up the notion that we should have any sort of internal harmony, internal integration. Uh, We just have to give up the notion that there's a natural connection between your biological sex and your sexual desire. Because there are people, uh, she herself is a lesbian, so she does not have the internal integration and she she calls it denaturalizing. We have to denaturalize the very idea of sexual orientation and say that there is no natural connection, and we all have to accept the notion that we're fragmented bits and pieces that di- are disconnected and that there's no internal coherence. Well, you can see why the Christian view is actually much more humane, because we're saying, no, you're not just scattered bits and pieces. It is good to have an right. internal coherence. That, that is how God created us.
1: Yeah and it, it seems again it goes back to um the the almost trying to get away from the science trying to get away from biology and and I know this leads into uh chapter 6 and probably a lot of the same points are going to apply but with the uh, the transgender and um yeah I mean what's uh in, in that in that particular chapter I guess it's the same same kind of points you're going to Maybe walk us through the, the chapter with the, the transgenderism. Is it just seems to have really just blown up as far as uh, acceptance and popularity. It just seems to be like the next thing uh, now that same-sex marriage is legal and that's kind of been accepted. Now it seems like transgender uh, transgenderism is, is kind of the next thing up.
2: Right, and it's even easier to detect the the dualism, the body-person split, in arguments that are supporting transgenderism, because the transgender narrative specifically disassociates biological sex from gender. It insists that the authentic self is strictly a matter of inner feelings. And so kids down to kindergarten are being taught that their bodies are irrelevant to their identity. So the implication, again, is that the body doesn't matter, that matter does not matter, all that matters is a person's inner feelings or sense of self. So, well, in other words, if a person senses a disjunction between the mind and the body, the mind wins. But why? Why accept such a demeaning view of the body? That is radically dehumanizing. If our bodies don't have inherent value, then a key part of our human identity is being devalued. So the transgender narrative estranges people from their own body. And once again, you see how this opens up an opportunity for Christians to say, what we're bringing is a, mo- a much more positive, a much more humane, a right. much more loving view. Um, you, you may know, um, the, there's an outspoken lesbian named Camille Paglia. And she has a quote that, that's, that really sums up what's at stake. She basically says, um, Look, nature has made male and female. That you know, there's there's no doubt about that. You know, postmodernists who try to deny that are just denying nature. Nature made us heterosexual. They made us um, made, made us for reproduction. But then she says, but she herself is a lesbian. So she says, why not defy nature? Why not defy, as she puts it, defy nature's tyranny? And she says, fate. Not God has given us this body. And we have an absolute claim to our bodies and may do with them as we see fit. So that's really the heart of it. If purely blind material forces have given us this body, then, then why should we pay any attention to it? Why, it has no moral message. Right. It does not give us any clues to our identity. It does not inform our moral choices. By contrast, Christianity affirms that we live in a, structure, in a universe structured, not by blind forces, but by the loving purposes of a personal creator. And we are called to live in harmony with that structure. So, uh, you know, whereas critics say, well, Christianity is negative and oppressive, in reality, it affirms sexuality as part of our deep design, which, which speaks to yeah. God and the beauty of God's character.
1: Yeah, it goes right, goes right back again to the worldview issue that's that's really good Uh, well as we come to a close here maybe you can um, end us on chapter seven the goddess of choice is dead from social contract to social meltdown
2: yeah this is um, this is going into some of the political and social implications of these issues because people say well the the, the sexual moral revolution is liberation but in fact All of these issues we're talking about, it's expanding the coercive power of the state. And why is that? It's because it's destroying pre-political rights. So take abortion. In the past, the law recognized the right to life as a pre-political right that you have just because you're a member of the human race. The law doesn't create it. The law merely recognizes it. But the only way the state could legalize abortion was to deny the relevance of biology – and declare that some humans are not persons. And so the state has claimed the authority to decide, arbitrarily, which humans qualify for the fundamental right not to be killed. So this is a huge increase in state power. Or take marriage. In the past, the state recognized marriage as a pre-political right based on the fact that humans are a sexually reproducing species. But the only way the law can treat same-sex couples the same as opposite couples is to deny the relevance of biology and declare marriage to be just an emotional commitment, which is what it did in the Supreme Court decision legalizing same-sex marriage. But the trouble is that there's endless varieties of emotional commitments, so the state has claimed the authority to decide arbitrarily which ones qualify as marriage or Wow. Transgender, the only way the law can treat a trans woman, someone who's born male, the same as a biological woman, is to deny the relevance of biology and he, to declare gender to be a matter of inner feelings. And so that's why the state is now passing laws, and corporations are passing policies, and schools are passing rules telling us who we must call he or she. And by the way, the next stage is parent is uh, parenthood. I've been reading some um, same-sex legal theorists who are saying uh, in the past, the state recognized parenthood as a pre-existing reality. It's something that happens when a mother and father give birth to a child. The law recognized that as a prior fact. The only way the law can treat same-sex parents the same as opposite-sex parents is to deny the relevance of biology because, of course, in a In a same-sex couple, at least the child is not biologically related to at least one of the parents. And so, therefore, biological connection can no longer be the basis of parenthood. And the state will define who who qualifies as a parent. And you will be a parent at the permission of the state. So notice in all of these cases, pre-political rights are being reduced to merely legal rights, and those are at the dispensation of the state. What the state gives, the state can take away. And so human rights are no longer inalienable.
1: And it goes back to that almost, uh, again, the, the, <laughs> with the flying in the face of just biology. It, it's funny, though. Mm-hmm. It's like sometimes there are things that people just know, even though they may want to hold on to these particular views, Intuitively, they know. Like I'm thinking, uh, like of the Olympics, or uh, recently within uh, mixed martial arts, there was a a man that uh, was a transgender woman and got in there and just uh, knocked the stuffing out of a out of a woman, you know, in in the fights, or uh, where the males transgender male will run in a female race and you know blow everybody's time away, yeah. I don't know things like that just seem to really intuitively I think people just know that that is it, it, there is a biological component and it can't be denied.
2: Yeah, and let's um let, maybe we should end a little on um what is a what is the Christian view that helps yeah. that helps bolster that intuitive sense. What is the Christian view of the body? And I think it's fascinating that uh, Christians The Christian church has faced similar issues before in that the early church was surrounded by world-denying philosophies like Platonism and Gnosticism, which treated the material world as a place of of death, decay, and destruction, and and, and treated the, the body as a prison. That was the actual word people like Plato used, but the body was a prison that we want to escape from. In fact, in Gnosticism, there were several levels of deities. And this world was created by a low-level evil deity because no self-respecting god would get his hands dirty mucking about with matter. So in this context, Christianity was revolutionary. It taught that it was the highest god, the supreme deity, who created the material world. And what's more, he pronounced it very good. An even greater scandal at the time was the Incarnation. The idea that God God himself entered into the material world and took on a human body. The incarnation is the ultimate (laughs) affirmation of the dignity of the body. And finally, at the end of time, God is not going to scrap the material world as if he made a mistake. He's going to renew it and restore it, creating a new heaven and new earth. And the Apostles' Creed affirms the resurrection of the body. So this is an astonishingly high view of the physical world. There's nothing like it in any other philosophy or religion. And that's why Love Thy Body, my new book, gives people the tools to go beyond a negative message, just, you know, it's wrong, it's sinful, don't do it, um, which is true, but incomplete, and gives them the tools to deploy positive arguments and to show how a biblical ethic is, is more appealing, more attractive, more compelling, more humane than any secular ethic.
1: Where can people go to get uh, the book?
2: Well, you can get it just about anywhere books are sold. So you can get it from ChristianBook.com. You can get it from Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, your local Christian bookstore. It's available all those places.
1: Is there a a website in that for people who are wanting to uh, learn more about your work and follow what you're doing?
2: Yeah, there is one. uh, This Nancy Piercy nancypiercy.com and you can uh, look up my other books and um, get a sense of what I'm doing. And uh, the, you can also look up the the, the Piercy Report is an, is a website run by primarily by my husband, and uh, that that keeps people up to date on it's kind of a uh, news and worldview website. So uh, nancypiercy.com and com are t- two websites that people can go to.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us and uh taking the time to go go over your book with us and uh we'll be praying for you and uh we'll put the link up and uh, encourage people to buy the book.
2: Wonderful. It's good talking with you.
1: You as well. Thanks again. God bless.
2: Okay, thank you.
1: All right folks that was miss Nancy Piercy and uh really good book really enjoy uh have not got to read the whole thing yet uh I just got the book a few days ago and I've been working my way through it but uh, I've seen a few talks and that uh by her on this and uh I've really appreciated her work in the past brilliant thinker, brilliant scholar, and uh just a, a wonderful wonderful tools for. Uh, the body for, of, of Christ. Uh, and so join us again. Uh, we're trying to do more of these podcasts and, and get more people on and do have have more guests. Um, it's been a little busy. Uh, quick uh, health update with Melissa. She's uh, still receiving some steroid treatments and that uh, at the hospital. And I believe we'll be doing some uh, blood plasma transfusions coming up. Those who who know us and have kind of followed our story have have seen uh, some of the physical issues uh she's been dealing with with the spinal cord and, and uh that's been that's been a fight. But uh she's doing okay. She's you know, we still still got a long ways to go and still trying to figure out exactly uh what it is that's uh wrong physically, but um working with some good doctors. Uh, my little girl's doing good. She's still still in school and uh, just growing like a weed and learning so much. So thank you, everybody, for your prayers for her. Um, still at Rasho Christi uh, at Winthrop University. We've got some really good stuff coming up uh, this semester. I believe it's February 27th. Uh, we're going to have Brian Henson. Uh, who works with Norm Geisler International Ministries, is going to be speaking, uh, giving a a uh, talk on the evidence for the resurrection of Christ. Uh, you know, folks, again, this is at a secular university. Uh, for those who are not familiar with Rational Christi, Latin for Reasons for Christ, uh, we're an apologetics ministry on the campus and really seek to defend the Christian faith. We're doing some things that... You know some of the ministries uh, are not doing. Um, thankful for all the college ministries, don't get me wrong, that are on the campus. Um, but you know, we all have different parts, we all have uh, different gifts, different talents, different things we can offer. And one of the things that Ratio Christi does is, uh, I think, really well is they focus on uh, apologetics. And so maybe you're hearing this and uh, you'd like to know if there's Ratio Christi by you, you can go to RatioChristi.org. Uh, good chances are, if you're by a university or college, uh, there's, there very well could be a Ratio Christi there. You could look on our website to find out. Uh, and maybe maybe you're the person that uh, wants to start a Ratio Christi in your group, so be sure to check us out. Uh, if you go to... Uh, See our our site on Ratio Christy. It's RatioChristy dot org slash people slash the Palouse. You can learn more about who me and my wife are and kind of some of the stuff we're doing there at Winthrop as well as uh, in the pro life work as well as our podcast and that as well. So uh, Clinton Wilcox is going to be with us next week, and I've done a lot of stuff with Clinton. has been on the show several times, and uh, so we're going to probably do another podcast and some video uh, next week, as well as hit the campus and do some interviews. So be sure to join us for that. And like I say, we're going to try and get uh, the Theology Matters show back a little more consistently, get some more guests. And I really appreciate everybody tuning in and listening. Hopefully it was beneficial to you. We will be praying for you. Pray for us and uh, we hope to continue to glorify God through uh, loving him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. Until next time, God bless, folks.